Hello, friends. Welcome to a new edition of the Tent Talks podcast. As some of you will know, we have decided to change the platform. Rather than one interview of the week type format, we are going to host a series of talks looking at one particular subject over a few weeks. We found that one episode was never enough to really deal with the great stuff that comes up during our conversations. So we decided instead to slow down, dig in, and take some time exploring different important subjects over a number of episodes. I'm glad that today's episode begins a series on interpretation and translation, especially in this modern era. It's hosted and put together by Sean McCoy. Listeners to the podcast will recognize Sean as an early co host of the show. Sean is also the host of Come to the Table, his podcast which engages in long-form conversation with people from wildly differing backgrounds to himself and many of his listeners. Sean is a generous, kind, and wise conversation partner, and in fact, it was he who was one of the inspirations for Tent Talks in the first place. If you want to hear more about Sean's story, you can listen to previous episodes where we interview him and where he tells his journey at length. And if you have an idea for a series of in-depth conversations, or perhaps even a documentary looking at one topic over a number of episodes, do get in touch. Stephen at tenttheology.com is the best way to reach me, and it would be good to hear your ideas. We are currently at work producing more audio series for the Tent Talks podcast. But for now, I hope you enjoy this series on translation and interpretation in the modern age with your host, Sean McCoy. Comfort is a waste of potential. And so the com- com- comfortable shouldn't be our first consideration. I mean, is that really how you want to spend uh, a lot of your life? And I hope the answer is no. Welcome, fellow traveler, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Tent Talks podcast. This is the beginning of a new era, a new age uh, for our podcast and for all of you in terms of what kind of content we're going to bring you. After a lot of talk internally with Natasha and Chris and Stephen, as he's mentioned to you, we're going to break up the four hosts a bit and give each one of us an opportunity to go through a docu-series, as we're going to call it, something to that effect where we take a topic or an idea and we run about three or four interviews in a row and create this holistic idea around whatever strikes our fancy, I guess. And we're really, we're really, we really think this will bring a, a different uh, level of uniqueness, a different level of content, allow multiple voices and provide some real context for you ultimately as a listener to draw from. I know that's my, my entire motivation is to take the things I've been dealing with and not just lament from it in front of you, just you hear me complain, but help, hey, maybe you're experiencing this too. What are you finding uh, around these kinds of things? And maybe I can shed some light on something and you can turn around and do the same thing for us coming backwards as hosts because we really believe uh, that we're fellow travelers, as we say in the pod. 
And so as we get started on this, the first one, the first series we're going to do that I decided upon was, is around the idea of translation and interpretation. And just as a plan, a couple a proverbial seed in the future, I got a couple coming, one on dualism and one on sex and sexuality. But this one has really been something uh, that has been at the forefront of my mindset around the last, especially the last four or five years, because it become, it's becoming such a prominent and dominating aspect of what we're doing. And it's opening so many more doors and ideas to things uh, that were limited before. And it's not wrong. I definitely want to stay when we got to the dualism, not the foreshadow. But I'm not interested in being right anymore. And there's some real irony to that based on our first guest today. It's more about understanding what else is out there and how much more it's thinking of things being incomplete. And, you know, I think about translation interpretation and a lot of our listeners are from North America, but we have a lot of listeners from the UK. And what's the common joke that, that we're separated uh, by a common language because communication can be hard. Can be, it can be amazing. It can it can move us to tears in a few short minutes of a song, uh, but it can also create. It can also it can hurt us. You know that old saying about you know sticks and stones is we've learned as we've gotten older is not true. That words can hurt you. They can also build you up, make it amazing. They can invoke in you an emotion and an amazing time and just a, a a pivot in what you think and what you see. So there's a lot that goes with this. And so we're going to do four episodes on that. And the next three, just a little foreshadowing for you, we're going to have the New Testament in Jesus with Dr. Neil Douglas Klotz. He's an expert on Middle Eastern languages, poet, musician, classically trained in psychology. And we're going to focus on, like I said, the New Testament aspect. And for, in that area, we're going to start a lot on the translation side with some ideas around interpretation at, at relative to that. And then they're going to do the Old Testament in Hebrew with uh, Daniel Schroyer. Uh, I found her on the Nomad podcast, just like Stephen and so many people have had a huge impact on my life. Uh, it really was a fundamentally shifting uh, in terms of perspective and understanding translation and what was possible. Uh, she's an author, speaker, spiritual director, and former pastor. And so we'll be talking to her, again, heavy on the translation side with a lot on the interpretation as well. And then we're going to uh, wrap up the series with Dr. Richard Beck, who most of you have heard recently. He's a friend of Stephen, friend of the show. Uh, he's somebody that uh, if you were on some of the stuff we've done recently. He's, he just has this gentle, um, wise presence to him. It just feels like he's not just repeating something. He's, he embodies the stuff that he talks about. And for him... Uh, talking about interpretation relative to socioeconomics, culture, how denominations interpret scripture. And him and I have a very unique connection in the denomination side, which we'll talk about in a bit. This journey for me starts with Proverbs 22.6 and uh, things like The Lost Message of Paul by Steve Chalk, which is a book uh, where a single word, like uh, uh, the Greek word arsenikoitai, and I'm going to murder that word, so pro apologies if you speak Greek, but it's the word that has become the, the, the hammer for the LGBTQ society. And then you learn about things like uh, then in the English translation of Bibles that the word homosexual didn't even exist in Bibles until 1946. And before that, it was, uh, there was a correlation around molestation and little boys. And then you, I looked at uh, translations between the NIV and the message and, and thought to myself, oh my gosh, if this could be that much different in terms of context and things of that nature, what else am I missing? And if that's the NIV to the message, well, what about all the translations before that? Because 
this uh, this didn't start out in English. And, um, you know, things like the letters of, from, from Paul were written before the Gospels were. And again, back to Danielle and stuff that she's talked about, Neil Douglas Klotz and what we're going to hear about them in the future. It's It starts to kind of create a bit of a, a strain, and specifically back to Proverbs 22.6 for me. Even if you, do, if you don't know it off the top of your head, you've heard it. We all, I think we all have. I heard it even before I became a Christian. And that is you know, to train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And if you're a parent like I am, it's this charge. It's this order. You are responsible as a parent for the child and the way that they should go and make sure that they do not depart. And I, as many as most of you know, or may recall, was in the military. Um, I've been in the corporate world for a long time as well. And in my world, when I hear you say to train, when I hear somebody's given the conviction to train, that charge, that is no small order. And it has a very certain application. It has a restrictive application. Uh, when you are in a, in a military situation or uh, some sort of law enforcement, or even something as simple as a marching band, uh, when you train a certain way, there's no deviation. You're not allowed to deviate. There's no interpretation. It's not up to you. It's not some sort of nice thing that you're hoping for. It is, you need to do it this way. And if you've ever been trained and been in a situation where your training takes over, it is a second, it becomes, it's a first nature, but in a third, kind of a second nature way. You're not even thinking about it. You just respond. So in this, I've heard friends of mine use this verse and say, but my job as a parent is to train up a child in the way that they should go, which we assume, and this gets in again to translation, interpretation, context, this is an Old Testament proverb that was written before Jesus ever came. But we hear it now today as you better get your kids saved. You better get them down the road. You better make sure they're following the right things and doing the right things and loving Jesus. Or else, if they depart from it, we all know what's on the other side of that. That is an anxiety-inducing charge. That is a significant different. That is a significantly different than what I'm about to talk to you about. Which is, I was sitting in church. A uh, guy by the name of Kenny Dean at the Bridge, only the second church I've ever been to, uh, about four years ago, and he was talking about this verse. And he said that actually, in the Hebrew, the beginning of that isn't. To, if you were to translate it back, isn't in that context quite accurate. That, it's, that the original Hebrew was actually around the idea of awakening a thirst. And for me at that point in time in my life, having spent a lot of time doing jobs and working in the corporate world around things that I didn't want to do, but I was because I wanted to, and it was jobs because I was good at it, but didn't mean that I really liked it. It didn't resonate with my heart and my soul, but I could do them. That was like awakening a thirst in me. I understood right away the difference to me the interpretation of asking somebody, of saying as a charge of a parent to say, hey, you want to awaken a thirst. And he didn't get much further than that before I was in another world. And there's a gentleman that I uh, that baptized me. He's like a father to me. Uh, he's even closer than my own father is to me. And he's a pastor at, for decades and retired. I called him up at his ranch in, in Utopia, Texas. And I was like, hey, it's my buddy, Mark Howell. And I'm like, hey, I go, did you know this? And it was kind of, I've heard him preach for years. He was our lead pastor. 
I don't remember him saying this. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't. It doesn't mean I wasn't listening and I didn't catch it at the time, but I don't remember that. And I kept thinking, it's the kind of thing he would have mentioned. And he goes, yeah. He goes, yeah, that's what that's right. He said, but do you know the other part of that? And I'm thinking, I didn't know the first part of that. And he goes, well, it's to awaken a thirst according to the way that they are bent. And so that compounds that entire statement for me in terms of if the charge for me towards a child, not just my own, but towards people even, to awaken a thirst according to the way they are bent. Contrast that with to train up a child in the way that he should go so that they don't depart from it later. The ending part doesn't have to change a lot, but that first part, to me in my world, to train somebody versus awakening a thirst according to the way that they are bent is completely in solar system difference hemispheres of contrast in terms of what how we should do this. And I can tell you from a personal level, four years ago, I looked at this and decided to take that other translation and apply it as a parent to our children. And I've watched my oldest daughter with this context in mind when there was things over the last four or five years and I was allowed, and I took this approach to it. I have seen the quote unquote fruit of that labor. I know I've seen people that are trained up. I've seen what happens when you you don't care about what, what they really want in their heart or their mind, or what don't care what, what what feeds their soul. We need a doctor, we need an engineer, we need somebody in the military, we need you to do this, and we really don't care what you want. So let's go get you to do that. And I don't think that's a stretch in our Western world, especially in ours, our collective areas, in terms of how we look at things. How many stories do we hear around this? And so I look at all these things, something as simple as one verse being that far off, to be honest, compounding with all these other things and, you know, gender, gender applications and misapplications and in this constant, as a, you know, you start to see that, uh, you know, white right-handed men who speak English seem to keep screwing up everything, which by the way is me. And it's like, well, is that the problem? Or what is the problem? Or, you know, or, you know, what else is going on here? So before we dive too far down this, I thought uh, it would be a good idea because it's helped me uh, to understand this, that it's really, really easy to look over at all these crazy people and just go, man, and just be dismissive. How can that person be so dumb? How could they be so stupid to believe in that? What's getting, how do they even wake up and, and jump on board with team whatever, fill in your favorite kind of uh, extreme kind of thing? Or if you've had a little bit of self-introspection, you know, you know, reflection, you start thinking, how did I ever get, where did, where did that come from? Uh, you know, I, I found myself you know, easily tearing apart other people, but the real work has been internal. Where did that come from? How, how come I was that way? So all of that to be said, I want to take a step back and start this out, not by going down the realm of, of, of biblical and you know, language translation and, and interpretation and, and talk about areas around cognitive dissonance and bias. And I'm fortunate, I'm very, very fortunate uh, to have a friend, not just somebody that I could Google who's really good at this, uh, but I have a friend, friend named Adam Hansen. This is not my first time to talk nor interview him for a podcast. He is a literal expert on this, and not just from a definitive or academic aspect. Uh, he, and I'll let him explain this a bit more, but his actual job has been understanding human behavior, like from a corporate, you know, f you know, ROI, KPI results, like how do we do this? What are we doing? How are we doing it? 
Why, are, why isn't this doing this? Why is this product doing that? Why isn't this service going here? Uh, you have to understand human behavior and doing so in a very pragmatic sense with no uh, you know, overhanging alternative around you know, spirituality or politics or something like that. Just understanding people for who and what they are. Adam uh, is in a unique position to be able to give us real-time reflection on this to hopefully, hopefully uh, for you, the listeners, the opportunity to not only see where this may be impacting people like that crazy person that can't seem to, you know, stop waving that whatever flag. And now maybe start, maybe understand them a little bit more, maybe a little bit more sympathy and empathy to what's making them uh, tick. A little bit like our theme for the show of, you know, re, you know replacing bad ideas with good ideas. Um, and even more than that, what happens when we look in that mirror? And how can we apply this to ourselves? And what can we learn to help us approach these things? And maybe, maybe we have some dissonance. Maybe we have some bias. Thank you, buddy, for uh, coming to the tent. Sean, thank you so much. It's just, I think maybe one way to go into this is just give you, uh, you know, just some of my priors. You and I were talking uh, years back. It just kind of occurred to me that I would so much rather be effective than right uh, because the whole path of trying to be right kind of sets me and I think most of us off on this path of being defensive and, and, you know, reactive. And I think I'd rather be expansive and, and be in true communion with others and, and, and to be proactive and to be generative. And I believe that the, the good life is a life of generativity, of contribution. And so just uh, by, by way of um, kind of background and, and uh, professional work. I am uh, a partner and the VP of behavioral innovation at innovation consultancy called ideas to go Our clientele tends to be fortune 200 type companies. We work across uh, consumer packaged goods, healthcare, and financial services. Before that, I spent time on the client side working in innovation. My whole career has been in innovation. I was fortunate enough to find out in grad school, in MBA school, that you could do innovation for your entire career, not just have it be part of your career. And I thought, well, that's that almost sounds too good to be true. Let's explore this. Let's see if this makes any sense or whether that's just kind of, um, you know, kind of myth-making. It's wonderful. It, to me, it, it's so full of life. It is generative. It's the, the, the distance between what I do for a living and who I am I don't think could be much more minimal and uh, that can sound really unhealthy and it can sound a lot like workaholism. But I say the reason why that isn't is for me, it really is not about deficiency motivation. I know my dad loved me. Uh, <laughs> there's no, there are any ghosts, you know, that I'm trying to uh, appease, you know, there or anything. And so for me, it really is about growth, about getting better and better. And with that, being able to increase my contribution to others uh, not just like within work, but in, in other causes that matter to me. And really just, you know, being able to have great conversations like this and see if we can help people understand that innovation is our birthright. Um, that's that's just really who we are. And we get a lot of weird messages as we grow up and, and maybe as we get into the workplace and everything that um, makes it too easy for us to define ourselves as something other than that expansive, proactive, generative 
being that I think is, is really our true nature. And so how to clear out some of uh, some of those non-conscious obstacles is really kind of my, my life's work now. For me, uh, I find tremendous motivational power in questions. I find tremendous power in trying to figure out how to help people be better and better at, at again, at, at kind of drawing out what I believe is this very natural fundamental part of who they are they can just uh get through some of the um, some of the the weird conditioning that that would tell them otherwise so so in in that in that in that frame i mean that's a that's a great seg- segue or setup for you know i think we're i think hopefully everybody's like me they're like yeah it sounds wonderful uh, and it's not to put a butt in there but you know it comes with some baggage <laughs> right it comes with some it, it definitely know, does it comes with some what i wasn't you know with uh, you know this bias that bias and you know and if you if you google it i googled it i was googling it today because i remember I remember we talked not too long ago it was it felt like there wasn't there's only a handful and now there's like every i mean it's all over the place in a sense oh there's a ton and it, well <laughs> and it's just like anything else as you explore a new area sure, again sure. just like as i said as you get on this path and you make some advancements, you start to see things that just couldn't have occurred to you before. And yeah, I, I think what we're learning overall to kind of put a headline on it is that we come fully freighted with shortcuts, cognitive biases, you know, these, these kind of deeply ingrained uh, cognitive mental habits that developed because they served the needs of the time really well. And they served our ancestors really well. You know, things don't survive evolutionarily unless they're helpful, unless they're adaptive in some way, right? The other part of that with uh, with evolution is that uh, conditions change, change. So what was formerly adaptive under different conditions can become really maladaptive. But if you still have that automaticity attached to it, we still have these cognitive biases that really served our ancestors really well or just instant, just the whole uh, fight or flight reflex. I am so happy that's still part of me. I uh, I got chased by a bull when I was 11. And uh, <laughs> when my, my, my friend and neighbor said, hey, Adam, come, come, come help, come help Uncle Earl and me. We got to go round up his bull that broke out, uh, broke out of the pen. And I said, hey, I'm an 11 year old. And that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, until the bull came at me and then I start running and I don't, I mean, I, I'm not, I, at 11, I'm not smart enough to know, like to move my body a certain way at a certain time and everything, but, uh, that deeply ingrained instinct, um, told me to turn to the right as the bull was coming up to me. And I felt the bull's body brush my back, but had I not turned the right, that this bull had really big horns. Like that, you know, that would have gone into my back. That, I don't know it would have killed me, but it, it certainly would have messed me up. I didn't have to think about that. My body knew that. My body had the echoes of 10,000 generations, you know, kind of built into it. Uh, and so these shortcuts can still be really helpful for us when we face conditions that are similar to the conditions under which they originally generated. And often, if you're familiar, you know, for, for your your uh, audience here, you know, referring back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and the, and the pyramid, you know, a lot of those needs, a lot of those, a lot of that wiring is down kind of at the base of the pyramid. 
and they satisfy the deficiency needs and everything. And they're great for times of famine. They're great for danger. They're they're great for for all of these things. That's where you know that's that's the area where a lot of stress and cortisol uh, will reside. And you know, at a certain point, we we can make some choices. And I think I think uh, one question I like to ask myself uh, and revisit every now and again is just like you know, given however many years I have left on this planet, how much time do I want to spend with uh, more stress and cortisol than is actually helpful? Now, I need to take on a certain amount of stress so I can get stuff done. I get it. And obstacles can be very um, motivating. Obstacles can be very interesting. And if you approach them, you know, kind of as a puzzle and everything and bring your best to bear, but then make sure that you get your mind, your heart, your spirit and everything in a primed condition you're then actually going to be able to take them on better and so it just becoming aware that there's so much we can do there's just so much that we can do to do better and the great news is that it it doesn't have to be laborious it doesn't have to take a whole lot of time sometimes just to make that switch just to just to pick up that one little tool that will help us overcome a given cognitive bias that in the moment is going to trip us up and and not give us any benefit for the for the additional heartburn. What we've learned, uh, Sean, is that we we went to work on and started to figure out, well, what are the cognitive biases that make innovation unnecessarily difficult? And we we you know we we tested this over years and we really looked at it. And um at one point we had about 22. And we said, okay, that's on that's totally unworkable. So understanding humans, let's see if we can reduce that list, but not, you know, Einstein said, I think it was Einstein. Everything gets attributed to Einstein. Uh, <laughs> Just put his put his name on it, and it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think he said something like, um, "Everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler." Right? Uh, recognizing just human nature that man, the moment becomes too complex. We just tend to check out. We tend to figure out, well, that might be really helpful, but in the moment, I don't have time to try to wrap my head around it. So we got that down to eight different cognitive biases. Uh, I don't have to go into all of them, but just quickly, negativity bias, availability bias, status quo bias, uh, confirmation bias, conformity bias, um, confabulation, uh, errors of non-conscious framing, and the curse of knowledge. And uh, being aware, that that may sound like too many, and, and look, if you just got going uh, with your understanding on three of them, that's a, that's a really great start. I would always say start with negativity bias. And that is the idea that bad is stronger than good in our in its effect on us in the moment, in our memories. I think Rick Hansen, he, he had a great metaphor that said bad is like Velcro, good is like Teflon. And we tend to stick to the bad. Yeah, it just has such a an outsized impact on us. Usually beyond the, the reality of the situation. Like it's just going to affect us much more than it should. And the good just slides on by. <laughs> and we and we tend in some ways, I mean, we can't fault ourselves. It's how we're wired. You know, that's that's kind of an endowment that comes with us. But we can choose and we could recognize that and just even understanding that we let go of the good far too easily. Uh we don't remind ourselves of the good often enough to try to prime ourselves and and put some more helpful framing around what we're about to do and and we can just do better and and the reason why we need to do that is contemplation of the bad brings about it's just getting our our our, our neurophysiology right right 
And so uh, we're certainly there's going to be more cortisol coursing through your system if you're always focusing on the on the bad. And we also know that certain parts of the brain then get activated differently based on what our neurochemistry is at the moment. We are not ready to do our best thinking under conditions of fear. Uh, we're just not going to have access to our better capacities. It's back to Vic, you know Victor Frankl's recognition of um, the gap between the response which again is a uniquely human endowment. We don't know that other life forms can have some stimulus on them and they, they can go, well, let me think about this for a moment. Let me, let, me, let me choose what my response is going to be. No, it's all instinctive, right? It's it, they, they just kind of go right to it. We do too until and unless we recognize the power of choice and, and go, um, hey, I can, I, can I can choose something different here. I learned from uh, a guy I met at a conference years ago that the difference between emotional intelligence and emotional, uh, I guess, stupidity, just to put a fine point on it, is can be as little as six seconds. And when we we all know what it's like to feel that reactivity and that anger and or fear or whatever it is, and you know it could be a cold sweat that comes out, whatever it is, we know physiologically what's going on. We know we can tell what's going on with our heart when that happens and everything. And if we just stop and take a few deep breaths and just to a count of six, uh, we actually can kind of regain control of our physiology and our neuro neurochemistry. And so that's really helpful. Now, there are times and places where anger is exactly the right response, where fear is exactly the right response. And so I'm not saying you want to do that all the time. Again, under, under uh, real threat, it's great that that fear response can uh, move our body faster than our mind can even kind of catch up to. Yeah, it's just, it's really kind of just being aware of this stuff, Sean, um, so that we can do better. And, and the, the point I'd really like to stress here is that the things that we do, um, you can accomplish some real things within two or three minutes using them. Um, as we went about trying to figure this all out, we thought, well, look, application is the coin of the realm here. Uh, this has to be easy to apply. This has to be easy to understand, to to diagnose what's going on, and then go, oh, okay, it looks like this is the cognitive bias that's lighting up really brightly here. Here's a tool I can reach for to help us just overcome the the, the harshest effects of it, uh, and then and then we can just do more, and we're so we're capable of so much more. So, can I ask an ego question? And that is, yes, please. You know, realize that, you know, it's one of these things where I, I I've heard this. From you, I mean, and to go back to the very beginning a little bit, I do want to give you the the just do. You were the one that said I'd rather be effective than right way back, and I've, you know, tried to live off that for a long time. So, Sean, I really, I really think, I mean, I think you got you get some of the correct. I think that really came out just as kind of a a, a natural response to the conversation that we were having. It just kind of it kind of came together. Uh, and so again, it's back to the, the notion that look, we're all dependent on each other. Right. Like I, I, I don't. So I'm not that. In, I'm not interested in claiming sole authorship sure, of that idea. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and, and so, in the spirit of that, but but there's a sobering aspect where I think, yes, that makes sense. I see that in everyone else, and where it gets really difficult is I'm like, well, wait a minute. I thought, I thought I was smarter than that. Like I thought, I thought I was a little bit more in tune with what was really going on, and surely. Surely I'm not going to let this silly little negative bias or implicit bias really form me. And I think for me, it's been a sobering um, handful of years is to kind of go, 
oh, wow, you know, uh, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And so not, not to throw a bone of uh, it's going to be okay or some sort of, you know, indirect olive branch to say it's going to, it's going to be all right and pat you on the head. But can you, I mean, these are strong biases. They're these strong. Are, they're strong. They're, they're, um, they're often just intractable, gnarly. If any of you, if any of your audience is familiar with the work of, of Stephen Pressfield, he talks about how whenever you're trying to any kind of creative, any innovation effort, any creative effort, there's this nasty thing called resistance that comes up and it's just an evil, <laughs> it's just nefarious. Like it just knows all the ways to slow you down. And it, I would not want to give anyone the misapprehension that this is, uh, this is all about Pollyanna riding a unicorn, you know, going down a rainbow highway. Uh, this takes some work. It takes, it takes some awareness. It takes, first of all, some, I think it takes a, just enough curiosity curiosity for you to kind of check it out to go okay let's see maybe there's maybe there's a there there or not you know uh but what i'd love to stress is that your ability to get a handle on it is greater than you suspect it's just like anything else i you know um i i've uh it occurred to me kind of reflecting back on you know why why did i pick up certain things and then just stick with them and, you know, I, uh, as a younger kid, I just loved drawing. And I, my mom actually bought me, a, I think, my first set of charcoals for my big sketch pads and everything when I was probably about eight. And I was actually not a bad visual artist. And then um, music became a thing for me. And I discovered music when I uh, was asked if I wanted to be in band. And I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think I'd like to play trumpet. That sounds like a lot of fun. I was 11, you know. And the moment I picked up a trumpet, I think that may have been like the last time I ever picked up any kind of uh, sketch pad and charcoals and, you know, all of that stuff. I was a better visual artist when I was 11 than I am now. And that's that's not commendable in any way. It didn't have to be like that. It didn't have to be quite so, so um, you know, black and white for me. But I picked up the trumpet. I had no reason to believe that there's any, any kind of inherent talent and, and and we've come to understand that that's largely overplayed you know i was pretty bad originally and then later on when uh i got together with some of my friends and we said hey let's start a band you know like a regular rock band not a school band uh and then we said yeah this would be a pretty cool idea and then we just all picked whichever instrument we had access to and so i became keys guy Never took a lesson. So I was actually, I did actually get the training on trumpet. But when I started playing uh, keys, starting with piano and, and kind of the cheesy Farfisa organ that my family had access, you know, as access to, no training at all. So I'm, I'm totally self-taught there. And I sucked. I mean, like deeply, but we all did. So it was kind of like, it was kind of like the brotherhood of suckitude. But we loved it enough and we just got, gradually better and better you can see the trend trend always matters more than snapshot right i know that i'm not great i know i'm better than i was last month certainly better than i was three months ago and then as you get further into it you know after a couple of years hey it really started not sucking so bad and then really after i think by the time started when i was 14 by the time i was 17 it was actually fairly decent you know by the time i got to my early 20s i could sit down and play most pop songs if you know i could i could hear a song once and 
probably figure out how to play it. You know, you recognize the patterns, but yet, but just that idea of loving it enough to suck at it, enjoying it enough for itself and not as merely as something that's going to bring you other goodies, you know, is yes, it was fantastic. The girls thought it was cool and everything. I, yeah, I won't, I won't be disingenuous there, but, but it's just that idea, the curiosity, checking it out, being patient with yourself, but noticing growth and, and just and enjoying the growth uh, almost kind of as its own thing. Uh, I would recommend that. I think that that comes back to here, like whether it's this specific notion of understanding cognitive biases or just understanding self-applied behavioral science uh, better, this will make your life richer. This will make your life more enjoyable. This will this will give you a better base from which you can be more generative and make bigger contributions, I believe. As you deal with all this non-conscious noise that we inherit from our ancestors and just realize that that's going on there. And that's your you can't just make a choice once and go, okay, that's never going to happen to me again. No, I this stuff still comes up for me daily. But you get better and better at it. And just like any other skill, any other talent, you do develop a certain um, equivalent of muscle memory. And it becomes easier to go, oh, that I was about to do that. And I should know better. I wrote a, I wrote a book on it. You know, come on. I can make choices better now than I could 12 plus years ago before I really started going into this heavily. Uh, I believe that I will be even better at it, you know, 10 years from now. You know, uh, I believe that. Uh, I I'm hope I'm better at it all the way through to you know my last week on this planet, you know, assuming that I get to keep my <laughs> my mental faculties, you know. Amen. So what I'd love to do in the spirit of that is, can we do a quick quick reflection on each one of the, the remaining seven, just kind of give everybody an idea. So negativity bias, but it's more of the you just remember things that are bad. Bad is stronger than good. Bad is stronger. It has more of a pull on us, and we just need to understand. And that pull again puts our, if we perseverate on it, it puts our brain in a negative state. Really, we we can't do our best work. Uh, Then availability bias very quickly is um, when we're making decisions, when we're trying to take action, we tend to draw up in our memory what is most easy, what we can just most quickly kind of put our hands on, what's most available. And that's rarely the best stimuli that you want to have. And uh, the fix for that is just really using different stimulus and becoming better at realizing that we can reach outside even the field of what we're thinking of, we're working on, and we can look for other stimuli to kind of smash associate it with what we're working on and use that to to pull us out of our ruts and to go, um, just to go into more in a more expansive direction. You can come up with some really great stimuli to help you think through anything you're working on within two minutes. It doesn't have to be connected to what you're working on. The kind of a thoughtful blend of related and unrelated stimuli to the topic that you're thinking about are are, are really fantastic. I'd say just play with it. You know, I like to go, I like to find really unrelated stuff and just smash associate it with what I'm working on and go, where does this take me? At the intersection of those two things, what does it make me think of? What different benefits come out of this? Uh, what metaphors come out of this, you know, what associations come with this this connection of ideas now. 
So it makes it makes me think of like sand play for therapy and stuff like that, right? Different mediums. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, ab- absolutely. Okay. Sure. Yeah, well, you ref- you 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 kind of reframe. You know, you you define the space that you're working on differently because you're bringing in all this other stuff. Okay. Um, status quo bias is the idea that incumbency just has an incredibly strong draw on us. Uh, there's something about familiarity starts to feel like truth. And and you just kind of go well. No, those often it, it's a, a Steve Jobs had a quote like um, assumptions are just decisions that other people made at other times, and from that it went well. Yeah, and maybe conditions are very different, and so they decided things one way, and so everyone kind of go started going down that path. But no one, not frequently enough, do we come back and say, well, do those st- do the same conditions still apply? If those same people were faced with the current conditions in that area, would they have drawn the same conclusions that they did? And the answer is often, well, no, it'd be at least a little different, if not in some cases, you know, very, very different. So status quo bias is just recognizing that and saying, well, just because it's familiar uh, and comfortable doesn't mean that it's, it's, uh, that we have to do that. And, and I just on, on comfort, I have to say my, uh, uh, shout out to my nephew who is a, just this fantastic ultra marathoner. He's at the at the peak of of the sport. He uh, won the inaugural uh, triple crown of ultra marathons uh, a couple years ago, and he has this great quote that says, "Comfort is a waste of potential." <laughs> and I just absolutely love that. So shout out to Michael McKnight. Comfort is a waste of potential. I'm, I'll have to tell him to check out this podcast oh i love that um, i love that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and so the com- com- comfortable shouldn't be our first consideration because we left without some drive without something that's animating us uh we'll tend to just go hey what's comfortable and then you know you're not generative you're not really contributing you're just kind of reifying everything that's already been there you kind of go okay big deal like is that really how i mean is that really how you want to spend uh a lot of your life and i hope the answer is no so that's status quo bias. Yeah, uh, confirmation bias is just the idea that once we not even have necessarily made a decision, but are just even heading, we're kind of tipping toward a, a particular decision, we will non-consciously privilege all data that support that. And we'll figure out really clever ways while, why disconfirmatory data just like, well, you know, I can see how normally that might apply, but in this case, it doesn't really apply because of X, Y, and Z. And we come up with these very smart sounding reasons why we can just kind of keep, just stick with um, the direction we're heading. Uh, confirmation bias prevents an awful lot of good good work. And it's not that you need to question everything. Um, I tend to, <laughs> but I, I'm not I'm not asking everyone to become a Molotov cocktail throwing, throwing Trotsky at here or anything. But just taking the moment to step back and go, well, wait, are those are these assumptions really true? Like, do we have to just because that's kind of even how I was about to go? Um, maybe I can just take a really quick check. So, you know, as as the as the saying goes, uh, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> yes, famous uh, words. And so, it's, it's in that spirit, like uh, it's 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 one of those things where you you start to you're you're almost forecasting. You're 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 assuming something's going to happen a certain way. And then you're just, of course, of course they did that. Of course it went this way. You're, you're absolutely right. So right. We, we, we're we very, uh, we are inferential creatures and we draw these models of reality. And we just need to understand that that's all they are. They're just models of reality. They're not 
nothing close to actual reality, you know, because we're very finite beings. We can only take in so much. We can only assemble, you know, a, a certain very small subset of of uh, everything that's going on in reality. But we tend to look at to analogs. So like this new thing that's happening, what's that most like that I already have here? You know, what what's a pattern that I've seen lots of different uh, times? And uh, it seems like that's probably pretty close to what's happening here. So I'll, I'll assume that's that is what it is. Just taking the moment to say, what if that weren't true? And really, you know, uh, Karl Popper taught us that, um, you know, the the scientific method really is about doing just the opposite and seeing if we can't disconfirm things. Like if you can falsify something, that's really how science proceeds. And all we can say about theories in use are that, hey, so far they haven't been falsified. So they seem like they're helpful. And it's kind of back to that idea, would we rather be effective or right? And so much time is wasted on, on insisting on being right. you know. And I think, well, all the effort you're making to just kind of persuade yourself of being right, that effort could actually be applied to just doing good stuff and doing well, more. And, well, luck, you know. <laughs> luck, luckily, the scientific world doesn't suffer from any of this, so we're we're good. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, no, that's, just, I mean that's what's that's what's so so hard to see. And and you know, uh, look, thankfully, a lot of there's been, I think, a little more self awareness there and understanding that they're yeah because they're human, they're not above yeah. any of this. I took it. I took a cheap jab at him. I know. Yeah. 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 No. 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 It's great. <laughs> well, no, and. and Science should be at its base modest in its in its proclamations. And it, and it should say, yeah, this hasn't been falsified yet. It seems to be working. We have all these cases where it seems to be you know, following as if this were true is paying out. So let's keep going, but let's keep pushing it. And let's, you know, we should be ready to trade up at any given moment. Like those things that I, uh, that I hold most close to my heart about what's effective what helps me you know accomplish what what i do uh the moment i can see that there's something that that might be even better why would i cling so tenaciously to it like what kind of weird protective you know but there's comfort it, it, there it, there's there's it, it feels good comfort. it uh, is tradition. comfort is a waste of potential and i'm back at, <laughs> uh, back at Mr. the McKnight, at, yes I, i'm back at the base of of the mountain that mike mcknight is about you know ready to, to start climbing so do how much time do we want to spend there in this defensive contracted you know egoic you know kind of weirdness and i hope the answer is increasingly less and less i want to do that okay so um as confirmation bias conformity bias is hey we are social creatures uh, even the most fiercely independent of us, we like to believe that we're these bold, uh, lone, uh, swashbuckling mavericks. <laughs> mavericks, yes. and we're all if we're all influenced by each other, and we can't not be. And we can, if left unchecked, conformity bias can really take us into some really weird places. So we need to have a any kind of process that can can both set up give us the best of both worlds and give us the best of individual insight and recognizing where the group is and, and working with group consensus in a way that doesn't put the brakes on innovation, but can actually be supportive and everything. Look, ultimately we have to be effective in the world. We need to be able to work with others. You know, Stephen Covey had a great term about, you know, there's dependent, independent, but he had a great term called counter-dependent which is, you know, the bratty kid who is just always going to say no, no matter what you say. 
And if we're spending too much time in counter dependency, well, that's really dumb too, because we're still dependent. We're still, we're just dependent in a negative way, you know, and the idea is really to be independent, but then ultimately interdependent. We want to get the best of our association with a group. We also want, I feel like sometimes the greatest demonstrations of loyalty to the group is to challenge its most unexamined uh, truths with air quotes, <laughs> you know, and go, well, I, yeah. And we go, I, we can see why that we might have started to believe that, but let's just, there's no harm in just doing the thought experiment. What if that weren't true? Or what if that weren't so entirely true? Right. So conformity bias is something to watch out for. Confabulation quickly. We just have three left. Confabulation is the idea that when asked why we did something, we will Try mostly we try to be helpful. We try not to be jerks. You know, we try to you know honor the question, and so we will come up with a story for why we did what we did. And it's not hopefully it's not just out and out lying, but rarely is it fully the truth, capital T, simply because we don't have access to our deep, deepest motivations. Like we just don't know. You know, often we just did it, and we come we can furnish kind of the right reply. We can confabulate the response that that um it, the rationale for why we did what we did and and you know we get really good at making that sound right and everything i don't want everyone to get too freaked out about this i mean we're not fundamentally um vicious you know uh, deceivers but we just don't know for sure why we do much of what we do and 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 so even be a little more modest and say you know well i guess this is kind of what was going on in my mind at the time and what we've learned in our work is that asking the question why someone did something is almost the worst way to fig figure out what was actually going on. And when you ask the other journalist questions like, well, who were you with? What was going on before you did that? You know, how did you feel earlier? You know, actually get more of the context without asking you know, the kind of the direct confrontation of why, because why does tend to put us on our on the defensive, right? Um, and so when you really want to understand what's going on, asking some of those other questions is actually a far better approach to really getting the context and really kind of being able to tease out what the actual motivations were better than just a direct why. But, but I'm, I'm thinking of all the amazing, speaking of being a parent, I think of all the amazing times <laughs> I've asked my son or my daughters why they did something and they were able to give me this beautiful, well-reasoned answer, right? They never, they never gave me a a loaded confabulated response yeah no it's as, true. as it sounded right yeah. <laughs> nice. well again how much practice you get doing that yes we get very good at it and and even as we're doing it i think i mean when i when i've done that i mean i try to be a very honest person and i like i don't have a whole lot to hide right <laughs> you know and you start to feel like you're under scrutiny and it just starts like yeah start but it's just it's not yeah it's just not you there are better ways of really understanding what are the motivations behind some of the things that we do. Uh, and so even asking ourselves, not why, yeah, we can, a lot of this we can apply just to, our, to ourselves. This can be an intra-personal thing and not just an interpersonal thing. So that's uh, confabulation. Two more. Yeah, so real quick, oh, yeah, though, real quick though, you yeah. you mentioned something I think is really good from a context standpoint, the journalistic questions, so that when you're in that moment of you're going to sit there, why did you do that? Instead of that, start giving yourself context. You know, what yeah. was going on? What else? Yeah. What were you feeling? What were you, how much sleep did you have? Were you tired? Were you grumpy? Did something else happen 
good, bad, or indifferent beforehand that may may lead up to that, and if you kind of sense patterns and stuff like that. Okay, absolutely. absolutely. Well, and and it's and really, it really isn't. It sounds like such new age hokum, but it uh-huh. really <laughs> is important to be as compassionate toward yourself as you would want to be toward others. You know, um, doing. To others. I have heard that. I think I've heard that. <laughs> you would have the new one to you. We, we, we kind of blow through that. Somebody should write as, that down. <laughs> as you would have them do unto you. And so really, uh, you are sometimes an actor directed at yourself as well. And so really trying to understand that better. And look, self-awareness is a lifelong journey. You know, and, and um, it's it's not... Our starting point isn't necessarily all that great when it comes to self-awareness, but we can certainly get better at it. And we can kind of pick, we can start to notice our own patterns with some of these questions, with just a little more curiosity again about even our own thing, you know, that that gets better. So, yeah, I uh, in all this, Sean, I, I really want to reiterate that just because I understand a lot of this stuff yeah. in no way <laughs> has made me a ju- it made me a judge. I, if anything, I just feel like more and more I'm just here with with everyone just you know and the idea is to kind of uh you know lock arms and march forward you know together uh it gives me compassion for us it gives me compassion for myself uh and for me then it just becomes how do we create the conditions so that the better part of this is more easy to uh elicit and you know to kind of bring to bear on what we're trying to work on very quickly two final ones framing and that's just more about non-conscious framing and that's the idea. Every idea is presented to us within a given context, which is often unspoken, but we understand what that context is. And we start to believe that that's the only way of thinking about the idea. And simply by changing the frame, we can get insight on it. And kind of a, an, an interesting metaphor on this is, um, you know, stereoscopic vision. Why do we why do we perceive depth? Well, it's because both eyes share a lot of the same data, but then there's also some separate data that the eyes don't share. So it's enough of the same, enough different, so that depth actually emerges. I can see a little bit more on this side here. I can see a little bit more on that side there. When that comes together, then that's the only reason why everything isn't two-dimensional to us. Uh, you can extend that metaphor by choosing different frames, by bringing other people into the equation to, to get their thinking. Uh, but by really being, really having some fun with just framing up problems, questions, challenges in not just the most obvious way, but in some different ways and being able to get that perspective from others, really cool stuff starts to happen like depth. And I think you get greater and greater depth. You get really actually a better apprehension of what ultimate reality <laughs> may be like when you get um, when you get more angles. On a given thing, so that's uh, that's uh, the errors of non-conscious framing that we're trying to fight there. And then, lastly, is just the curse of knowledge, which is just simply once we become expert in something, we think that we can remember what it was like to be totally naive to the idea, and we just can't. Our our way of dumbing it down the very most is kind of like a college level three hundred one or four hundred one. You know, it's it's never one hundred one. Because we can't remember what it's like to be that totally unaware of the, this, the most basic uh, facets of, of the, the topic in, in which we're an expert. And so it's recognizing that, recognizing that even when we try our hardest, that's difficult. 
Um, and and so the, have you you've heard the kind of the construct, the ladder of competence? It starts with unconscious incompetence, and then you go to conscious incompetence. Is so that at least I'm aware that I'm not good at this? And then you get up to conscious competence. And it always bothered me that the last step, and I get it, the last step on the ladder of competence and is unconscious competence. Because now you're just so good at it, you don't even know why you're like, you just it's muscle memory. Like it's so, you've internalized it so much, you've automated so much of it. And I always thought that there should be a final step, which is conscious competence about your unconscious competence. <laughs> you know, it kind of gets... I get super meta, but it seems like the best teachers are those that have raised, have, have risen to the level of unconscious competence, but then they understand that that can be a real barrier in trying to teach others and scale that knowledge. And so being curious about how can I get better at breaking apart uh, the things that come from unconscious competence, and that's, to me, that's really tied in very much to what we're talking here about the curse of knowledge. We, it's great to become expert. Uh, and it's even better. We know the best teachers who have had both this body of applied work in the field. And they haven't just been theoretical. They've actually done it. They've been in the trenches making it happen. Uh, but then they can also break it down for you. And they can actually, you know, even though it wasn't natural maybe for them to, to be able to get back to uh, making it simple and bring it back to a 101 level, they somehow figure out how to do that. And I, my hat is absolutely off to them because I realize how very, I've come to appreciate fully how difficult that is. It's, 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 it's all too rare. And I would wish for most of us, as we become experts in various fields, that we, we keep this ladder of competence in mind and we figure out how we can get to that last step where we're consciously competent about our unconscious competence. So <laughs> say that three times. Well, the time with you always goes by quick. Hopefully for you out there listening, uh, you know, this, this is, these are tools, you know, way back when we first did this on another podcast, I saw these as opportunities for us to have tools, for you to have tools, for me to have tools as we go forth and try to, you know, make our way through all of these things. And, and can this give us, uh, a little bit more compassion for others and ourselves, which, you know, again, some of these things, if this was pedestrian for you, or of course you all, you already know all this stuff. I appreciate your patience. And, and we have, uh, we have, we'll get to the meat of translation and, and, and uh, interpretation coming up here soon. And I just hope that, but if not, if this help give you an opportunity to reflect internally, uh, to do so, and then take this as we go forward and not just in our podcast, but in your day to day. So with that, Adam, thank you, buddy. Great, as usual. Sean, thank you so much. So enjoyed it. My my good friend. You're a good, good man. Thank you. Appreciate it, my friend. Appreciate it. And to all you out there, thank you so much. We will be back next week with Dr. Neil Douglas Klotz. Really looking forward to that episode, and we'll take it from there. Until then, take care and God bless. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchin for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.